Welcome, friends and fiends, to another episode of Cult and Classic Podcast. I'm your host, film critic and comedian, Nate Wyckoff, and I just want to remind you to like and subscribe, and go ahead and go to cultandclassicfilms.com to buy exclusive cult movies on high-definition special editions with all sorts of things like milk caps, autograph movies, slip covers, and you can actually subscribe to get them delivered monthly to your door at a discount by going to cultandclassicfilms.com. Thank you so much, and remember, unlike the background here, which is from Escape from New York, you do not want to escape this pod because we are bringing you awesome, awesome film content every week. Thanks, and enjoy. <laughs> Welcome, friends and fiends of the pod, to a new episode of Cult and Classic Podcast. Welcome to our special New Year's episode. This is our kicking off the start of 2021 and kicking away the end of 2020, which, except for you wonderful listeners, has been a train wreck of a year. So uh, there's an interesting story between why these two films were chosen for our New Year's uh, episodes. And uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But with me, as usual, is Greg Johnson. How are you doing, Greg? I'm doing great. Um, I'm legally obligated to tell you I'm now sponsored by Brondo, the thirst mutilator. So... (laughs) Well, I expect lots of thirst mutilation to happen then throughout the course of the show. Also with us, as often, is Mandy Longley. How are you doing, Mandy? Good. I am happy to say goodbye to 2020. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There is uh, a world of reasons. Uh, Even without a pandemic, those of us in the United States have plenty of reasons to say adios 2020. And I chose Spanish to piss off our president. So, uh, These two films, well, let's just say, I'm Nate Wyckoff, your host, comedian and film critic for HorrorNews.net. I want to get into these two movies. Uh, First, we have Assault on Precinct 13, an early John Carpenter film uh, from 1976. And then we have The Children from 1980, which is a killer kids movie. Neither of these movies appear to take place on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve. So why, Nate, did you choose these two movies to discuss? Here is the logic. Both of these movies share a title with a later film that took place on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. The remake of Assault on Precinct 13 in 2005 with Ethan Hawke and Lawrence Fishburne takes place on New Year's Eve to sort of up the tension. And The Children has a movie, I believe it's from 2008, but you can look that up, uh, that is not technically a remake, although it is a killer kid movie that takes place on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. So... That is the reason they share this similarity, but I didn't want to watch those movies because these ones are more interesting and I think you will appreciate them. So let's get right into the first film, Assault on Precinct 13. Before we get talking, I'm gonna play this little clip from the original trailer for this. Here we go. On Saturday, six members of the gang known as Street Thunder were ambushed by the police. On Sunday, the warlords of Street Thunder swore a blood oath to avenge their dead. For the gang called Street Thunder, it is a day of vengeance. Oh, it is a day of vengeance. Yep, very 70s trailer there. You can also hear that tinny synthesizer soundtrack, which you will definitely recognize uh, as John Carpenter's staple uh, craftsmanship because of, of course he did the soundtrack for most of his films, including the seminal Halloween, which is sort of directly related to this movie. He got the funding for that movie because of the success of this film. And 
like that movie, this film was made with a very, very light budget. So you heard someone in there as well, I want to address, say the word Cholo. Now, in the United States and South America, Cholo has a sordid past uh, at use as a derogatory term for um, Hispanic people, Latin people, Latinx, uh, Latinat, whatever term uh, is preferred. And in this movie, it's used in a different context. It's uh, considered by this gang of multi-ethnic uh, cast to be a blood oath uh, of revenge, meaning that, I guess, they will do whatever it takes, including die, just to get revenge on whoever their target is, sort of a jihad moment. So you'll hear that, and that is in this movie. But the gang itself, which is very only a couple of times mentioned and in passing, is, I guess, called Street Thunder. Now, I've seen this film several times. I never knew that. Um, I also think it's interesting that it's called an adolescent gang when there's not one person in there that is under the age of 20 something. Uh, and many of them were college students at the time. So we're going to go right to you guys, our panelists. Mandy, had you seen this film before? I had not seen this film before. Okay. What was your expectation going in? And now that you've seen it, what do you think? Uh, so I mean, like, I, I, unlike a lot of the other movies we watch, I actually did look a little bit at this movie just to decide which of the two I wanted to watch first um, based on my schedule and uh, I was like oh it's like a cop film blah I don't really like cop films oh it's like a bunch of people like trying to attack the cops blah and then I really enjoyed the film <laughs> when I sat down and watched it I really really liked it um, I like the kind of like the slow build in the tension the slow setup like in a lot of times um, through the podcast, we've talked about how that's kind of a negative thing. Like we, we feel like a lot of movies are paced too slowly or they take too much time to tell a story. I felt the exact opposite on this one is that I really appreciated the time that they took to like kind of slowly set up those dominoes. Um, and I felt like that was a really strong part of like the overall movie. It is interesting because looking and, and if those of you watching us on video or our Patreon members, you'll see that the original poster is a very 70s, almost 60s poster. It's, it's black, white, and red with gradients, and it's Assault on Precinct 13, the logline being a white, hot night of hate. It seems like it could be one of two things, um, either a straight crime drama uh, based on police officers and a street gang, or it could be a race riot film of some kind, both of which were very popular uh, at the time this film was made. It's really neither. Um, it's a very strange, sort of unique siege movie. Um, the the uh, There's actually a parallel to another very famous film that we'll go into, which John Carpenter was well aware of as he was making it. But first, I want to go to Greg. Greg, had you seen this film before? Uh, no, I had not. What did um, you expect, and what do you think now? Expecting it to be a lot more um, action-packed, which is kind of wild considering it's basically one long holdout film. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I kind of got the feeling watching it, I'm like, I think I can't detach myself enough from, it's 2020, I've seen a lot of movies. Um, how would I feel if I was, you know, in my 30s seeing this in 1976 in a theater? Um, and it just kind of felt like one of those films to me where I, I'd seen too much that had come after it that, you know, probably learned from it. Um, I'm thinking about the, um, 
the purge movies specifically it kind of gave me some of those vibes of kind of society gone out of control um so it, it was a little slow for me a little bit um nothing new it wasn't a bad movie i just i didn't take much from it yeah so it is interesting because many 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 films took from this uh, and what I was mentioning earlier, the film that this heavily takes from is um, George Romero's original Night of the Living Dead. So, um, and we can talk, there's, there's some takeaways in The Children, which we'll talk about later, in that film as well. And I thought that was an interesting parallel between these two, because of course Night of the Living Dead is some sort of siege movie, right? Um, the survivors during a, essentially a pandemic where the dead are coming back to life, uh, they are uh, trying to get into this house and, and kill and potentially eat these survivors. Now, in this, we have a, uh, a officer, uh, he's a, he's a statey, he's a, a highway patrol cop in California, and he is trying, he, all he's doing is he's supposed to relieve um, the chief, or captain rather, of uh, this precinct, which is not precinct 13, we'll get into that in a minute, I believe it's precinct 4, or, or, uh, or district, anyway. Uh, so this character is uh, played by Austin Stoker who is a black man and that in and of itself was kind of interesting because our lead is a black officer and he's taking over command from a white officer but this station is officially closed uh it is getting its power and lights and phones cut off in the morning and all they're really doing is sitting there rerouting calls while there are still phone lines uh from people trying to get to police saying hey you got a call here uh, and if anybody shows up, hey, you got to go here. This is in an essentially abandoned neighborhood, and it is no longer functioning as a police station. That's all they have to do, and hell breaks loose. The hell breaking loose, we sort of heard from that clip in the trailer. Um, the police had, did a sting on these uh, the street gang, and they essentially just butcher these six, uh, these six gang members. Now, the gang members are armed, and they try to run, but they're in a very tight hallway and they're just shot with shotguns through slats uh in, in the or above actually um from the the rooftop so it's kind of weird because as a viewer i'm not quite sure how to feel right because my assumption is, is oh this is just a dumb action flick um so i'm just supposed to think these are bad guys and the good guys are the cops and they did something to deserve this we really don't see that we do know via clips from the radio and television in this movie that uh, a, a large amount of assault weapons uh, they're not even called assault weapons they're automatic weapons are on the streets they don't know where they are and i love the, the idea that they are uh, it, the police captain or whatever or chief uh, on the radio says something like um it would be dangerous if they fell into the wrong hands where the hell do you think they are um, I, I think that if they've been stolen, they are essentially in the wrong hands. So that's interesting. But I think, Mandy, you kind of mentioned this. In the first half of the movie is not the siege. The second half is a solid action siege. The first half of the movie is introducing one by one and, and in pairs these different characters. Um, and we get a lot of driving around Southern California, which is interesting because it does, I mean, it, it feels like Southern California. It feels like maybe um, LA County, like you're a couple of blocks away from Skid Row, uh, but so things aren't great, but it's, there are people living there. You know, there are, are middle and lower middle class people interspersed throughout uh, on the socioeconomic spectrum. And we get that through these scenes while 
um, Austin's characters driving around. We also get introduced uh, to a three convicts who are being transferred presumably to death row, I believe is what they, they sound like. And they're en route to uh, a, like on a six hour drive uh, on a bus with some officers to go to this new prison. One of them is Napoleon Wilson. That's of course a nickname played by Darwin Jostin. And Napoleon, we don't really know what his crime is, do we? We know he killed people, but we don't know anything else about him. And he and two, actually one other uh, character who is being transferred to throw, uh, who goes by Wells, played by Tony Burton, also uh, a black actor. The reason I mention this is because this is quite a multi-ethnic cast across the board, and it's multi-gendered. There are uh, several women characters in this. Uh, there's even a child character that kind of doesn't last long, but we'll get to that. So anyway, this is one of those cases where it is a slow buildup. I did not know every time they introduced a new character, I was kind of surprised. So I'm like, how big is this cast? Um, well, but, they, they figure that out pretty quick when they <laughs> get to the precinct. That's right. That's right. Um, what's interesting about it to me is that and I think you got to this, Mandy, there was a tension early on um, that something terrible is going to happen. And you know it because, of course, the, uh, the Street Thunder gang in the beginning, they are listening to the radio, they know that six of their members have been killed, and they start cutting their, their forearms and they're draining the blood into a jar. And, uh, and then they're unpacking weapons. Um, Mauser, guns, which I, be I believe were used by the Nazis. I could be wrong, but some form of them. Uh, there are certainly other eras of that gun uh, and that gun company, but, and uh, semi-auto weapons, automatic, things like that. There, so you know something bad's gonna happen. What really got to me as a person who grew up in Southern California in the 90s was the drive-by scenes. Now, we see a lot of cars driving in the beginning. Most of the characters that are introduced to are driving. Uh, the, uh, of course, the officer, um, the convicts, and um, also we get, uh, I believe Martin West plays, is that Martin West? I'm, I'm forgetting the name of, of our cast here. Uh, it's not him, sorry, my bad, it's a different character. But we have a father and his young daughter. And uh, they're driving as well. And it sounds like they're going to try and convince uh, this girl's, I don't know if she's her nanny, I think, who lives in a really bad neighborhood to come live with them. And uh, we get to this scene where uh, near the precinct, this father pulls over, he uses the payphone, and a little oddly, he lets his daughter kind of walk a little bit up the street to an ice cream man who's parked on the side. The ice cream man has had this really interesting scene, right, where he has been watching this black car drive back and forth up and down the street and it's making him nervous and he's waiting essentially for it to go away but it keeps coming back and he several times reaches for the handle of a pistol that's underneath his dashboard. Now growing up in Southern California in the 90s there was a very big fear especially where I was of drive-by shootings gang related of course, and they always talked about things like it's, you know, initiation shootings or retaliation shootings against this group of people, whatever the case might be, is a very real thing. Um, I'm sure it still happens, but at the time it seemed to be in, in middle-class America, a big, big fear. 
Um, it was probably surpassed kidnapping at that point. And uh, you would see footage uh, on the news of shootings like this in the aftermath. And they're pretty terrible because it's terrifying. You, you don't see it coming. And so you have this car with these four armed gang members going back and forth. And one of them in the back seat is aiming a weapon uh, out the window at various people, uh, an older woman with groceries, a guy walking on the street. And you're, you're kind of terrified at who they're going to shoot, if anyone. Well, it turns out that this ice cream man is correct. They're coming back and they make him get out of the car. They beat him up, shoot him three times. And that's when the little girl, who by the way, is a Karen in the making. So I don't know if we're feeling that terrible about it. She's returning because she asked for a vanilla swirl. And this is just a vanilla cone. This is where we get the iconic scene from this movie where uh, the gang member turns and without hesitation shoots the little girl through her ice cream cone and kills her. She falls over. Now, this shot horrified the censors at the time. In fact, they went to John Carpenter and the distributor and said, you have to take this out. Um, otherwise, it's getting an X rating. And he was upset, I guess, uh, because he's like, well, you can't. The problem with an X rating is the whole reason we don't get them nationwide now very often is because you cannot get theaters to pick up an X-rated film. They will not do it. Uh, you can very rarely get an NC-17 right now, although that's being phased out. So the issue was, is that Carpenter was like, this is an important scene because it sets off a chain of events where the father gets revenge, kills one of the gang members, and they follow him into this precinct. And this is kind of what starts the whole thing. Well, now, that aside, I mean, I think it's one of the best scenes in the whole it, movie. It is. Mm -hmm. um, now, people who are already familiar with this movie might know, but what happened is, is John Carpenter went to the distributor and said, this is the situation. I don't know what to do. And they said, well, you cut the scene and you send it to the rating board. And he said, but that's a problem for the movie. And he goes, and they said, no, it's not. Because then you put it back in and you send it out for distribution. And that's what they did. An unrated cut of the film is what went nationwide. And it became a hit. And it had lots of people up in arms. Mothers groups were up in arms. People were horrified because even now you don't see that many films that have violence against children. Uh, unless you're talking about our partner film, The Children, which we'll talk about. So I was going to say, I thought that that was the New Year's theme is kids getting killed. Kids getting killed. <laughs> really, this would have been super apt if I picked these two films for the New Year's leading into 2020. But, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways to talk about that. But anyway, so that's the famous uh, scene in this film. Now, I would say it's a striking scene. And the squibs they use in this movie, which if people don't know, those are the small explosive charges that either have blood or they show bullet impacts in walls or on clothing. Um, it's a practical effect. Uh, they're fantastic in this movie. They're very good. And they have the squib in the ice cream cone. So what happens is when she's shot through the ice cream cone, it explodes blood over the front of her as opposed to blood coming out of the front of her. And it's a very unique look. Um, it, it, it's different as if they did it on the shirt. So this is a famous scene. It's a famous moment. It's very uncomfortable. Uh, and, uh, and it sets whole thing in motion. And the fantastic part about this scene is that once... Uh, the little girl is shot. The father is at the phone. He sees her lying on the ground. He starts to panic and he runs up to her and he's like super, obviously super upset. He looks and he sees the dying ice cream man on the ground. And in his last breath, the man tells him, there's a gun under my dashboard. 
that's what he shares with the father, which is an epic moment because, I mean, that's not what would happen in the average mainstream film. It really isn't. Uh, and so the father instantly dives into the ice cream van, digs out the gun, and runs back to his car, leaving his dead daughter and this man on the street to go get revenge on these gang members. Then he puts and, out his thumb for hitchhiking and Charles Bronson rolls up and it's Death Wish <laughs> right, 7. Exactly. Yes, it is super, super Death Wishy at this point. Um, what's interesting too is he, he does get revenge very quickly. Um, he, he blows away this guy uh, who's, who's got the gun and the others run. But then he does a stupid thing where he leaves his car, right, to go to the payphone yet again. Payphones are clearly the devil in this film. Um, and then he realizes that the others are coming back for him and he doesn't have a weapon and he runs and he gets to uh, the precinct. At this point, he breaks down and he no longer is a character in this movie. Um, he's essentially comatose. Uh, and that was an interesting choice. Uh, I guess I wasn't mad at it, but did you guys have any thoughts? Because he never comes back from that. In fact, the most we see him, they lay him down in the, in the uh, captain's office, and then the most we see him is at the end, he survives, he's being carted off on a dolly, and he seems like he's trying to say something to them, but no words come out. Um, I mean, I liked it. I, I, um, going back to when he sees his daughter's dead, you mm -hmm. kind of see this, it, it shows the daughter lying down, the ice cream driver on the road, and then it goes back to him, and he kind of looks like baffled or just not comprehending what's happening and it, i mean it takes a few seconds for him to start running over and like oh my god oh my god mm -hmm. and so i guess it kind of worked for me that his initial reaction was disbelief then he gets over there and it's panic and then this ice cream driver says hey there's a gun in my car and he he obviously isn't able to control himself or think about what to do and so his first reaction is take the gun go and blow this guy away and as soon as that's over and the adrenaline's off right. he shuts down mm -hmm. exactly then what and it's interesting because there are two revenge plot lines in this right there's that one which is resolved very quickly and is sort of not a thought process right it's a reaction and then you have the street thunder gang's revenge which is very thought out but you wonder what's the What's the aftermath for both of these? Because the father, obviously, now there's nothing. Uh, I mean, I'm sure in, in, in whatever broken brain this character has at this point, he's gotten revenge and it didn't fix anything. And his daughter's dead. And now, I mean, I can, I can only imagine what it would be like, but he's not even the same person anymore. So who is he? Now, the gang is interesting because we don't understand anything about these people. They are um, completely... It's sort of, I, I've seen other writers and essays reviewers uh, and researching this film talk about them as being dehumanized. But what's interesting is I don't think they're dehumanized because they're, they're literally never humanized. Like they're not, they're not even acknowledged as people before that point. Um, well, I guess going back to when they like, when they do the, the cutting ritual, um, I, you know, I kind of expected the film to get a little more culty, a little more um, mystic with mm -hmm. that element of kind of this blood ritual, et cetera. But I mean, I thought that set them up from the beginning as being inhuman. They're these right. kind of beings that don't feel that act in this crazy manner. And I, I mean, I would agree that I think that they were dehumanized from the start. Um, 
I would I wouldn't have been shocked if they pulled off like zippers from the back of their heads and they were you know from the <laughs> Netherlands like like realm or something like. The, the just, Swedish or the Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, <laughs> I was disturbed by the quantity of blood in their blood oak. Right, like, that was a lot. There were like four like, people, and that was a full jar. Um, like they, they had to have some orange slices and some cookies. Um, and yeah. there's this great scene where uh, uh, they've already, one of the officers has already been shot and killed, and, and then several more shot and killed out back while they're trying to get to the uh, transport van. And so everyone knows they're now stuck inside. The prisoners, Wells and Napoleon, have been freed and given weapons because at this point, they, everyone, it's everyone together in this survival situation. Uh, and Wells is a convict who apparently roomed with one of these uh, gang members before, and he recognizes what's happening, that they have essentially a, 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 you know, their version of a holy war against them as their enemies, and it doesn't matter who they are or what, what, how many lives it costs, they're going to get them. And the way they signify this is they shatter the container of blood across the concrete and then lay down uh, a banner with, uh, you can't really see it, but I assume it's their sign, or I think it actually says Cholo, again, that term not being used in the way that we understand it today. Um, that was a cool scene, I thought, because it was, it was like a very warrior's scene, a very, um, it sort of reminded me of a Western in a way where you had this very limited understanding of Native American culture. And, and there was this, you know, especially in the early days, like it wouldn't even necessarily be a, a real Indian tribe. It would just be this made up tribe and they would have rituals that the people, the, the, the white man wouldn't understand. Um, and it's sort of like that, right? And it does that. I like Greg used the word inhuman instead of dehumanizing. And that's the right word. They're not people and they're not intended to be. And I thought it was very wise and interesting of John Carpenter on this, especially this is 76. So, you know, much like now tensions between race is very high. This is a very multi-ethnic cast. And that includes the Street Thunder gang. Um, there are different races and ethnicities in there. So it's sort of like he's taken the audience's expectation of having this as a, a race play uh, or a play on race and, and said, nope, that's not what this is. So find other meanings. Um, and it's interesting to do that because it really does, like, I think we look for cues as an audience, especially, um, because this is an, an American film and being an American, like we look for cues that we're used to in our films, uh, especially in police and crime films where you have people who are low income, you know, who are the gang people, and then people who are considered those in power, in this case, the police, and you really don't. I can't place that anywhere. And it leaves, I think it added to the overall tension of the film for me because I was much like in the beginning where I didn't know who was going to be the first victim and how this was going to, uh, this, this catalyst was going to erupt the situation. I didn't understand all the time what I was supposed to feel. And I think Carpenter really runs with that. Um, you have uh, another weird situation where Napoleon, the convict, who's clear, like he's, presumably murdered many people, um, he has this, this, you know, physical, this physical free romance with um, the strong woman who is sort of the front desk person at this precinct. 
right? Um, and she is the, the other character. She's actually, she and Napoleon are the only two that never lose their cool. Um, and she is played by Nancy Keys. Um, and the interesting thing here for, for those who love John Carpenter films, uh, she's credited in this as Nancy Loomis. And Loomis, of course, being the name given to um, uh, Donald Pleasance's character, Dr. Loomis, in the Halloween series. So uh, Carpenter, if you look at his, the credits for his films, especially his early films, he returns to past films many times and sort of gives credit to people that he enjoyed working with in the names of his characters. And it's, it's quite interesting. Um, side note. This is also the reason that Donald Pleasance, who, you know, we love here at Colton Classic podcast, uh, did Halloween because his daughters saw Assault on Precinct 13 in particular and really liked this movie. And so Donald Pleasance was like, oh, yeah, I'll do, I want to do your movie. Uh, and of course, it became one of his most famous roles. So you can kind of see how these things play out. Um that kind of brings up a one question I had for both of you. And really my only question about the film is the, the whole arc with the prisoners and those characters generally, I kind of was less wondering why they were there. Yeah. It was stuff that I feel like it barely took me a step to be like, okay, you make this character a cop. Okay. You take this out entirely and just have this person do the lines. Um, I, and you know, we, we've talked a little bit, all of us about, this kind of being a cycle of revenge flick, the dehumanizing of these these criminals that are assaulting this precinct for kind of no reason, but also this really serious reason. Um, and I guess I was wondering what you guys thought about why the prisoners were there, because I, I felt like they did it just for, you know, some laughs and just to kind of surprise you when um, they get there and then all of a sudden gunfire just erupts on the prison bus and most of them are killed. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was partly to add tension and diversity in the people they're bringing together. Um, I thought that they would do more with the theme of like they are all in it together, so to speak, to survive the night. And they did touch on that a little bit, like saying almost those exact words. But there wasn't. I did. I would have liked to see them take it a little bit further to be like, we are all like people like we've separated some of us into bad people who need to be punished or like kept from society and like good people who protect the peace like with the police officer group um but when we're under pressure and there's a reason for us all to actually have a common goal like look we can all do this together I mean, they didn't really take it that far like they were doing that they were making plans together and stuff but it wasn't really like specifically spelled out in that way um, but I don't know if that was maybe what they were just trying to get to. They just didn't make it, like, as obvious. Do you feel like that last line of the movie is kind of indicative of maybe that was, I think that yeah, that line. Yeah, because they, like, walk out together, right? Is that what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, and, like, I think that, isn't it mm -hmm. the cop who's, like, I'd be honored to walk out with you in the yeah. main be, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, so yeah. I have an interesting thought on this, and I want to correct a mistake. I, I said that... Um, that Nancy Loomis, aka Nancy Keys, was the strong character. She actually plays Julie, who is the, the phone operator there. Uh, she mans the phones, and she is not the strong character. She's the first to break. Um, mm -hmm. the, the character who plays the stronger one, uh, Lee, is uh, Lori Zimmer, who is, does a fantastic job. And I guess Lori Zimmer, interesting fact, did not like her performance in this film. When she was watching the dailies, which is when they run uh, what's been shot for the day to check it, uh, she was horrified, and but apparently John Carpenter's like, no, this is great. This is your character. 
So it's interesting. But um, you're, of course, right. I think the idea is that Napoleon has this streak where you're like, he's supposed to be a criminal. He's a murderer of some kind. Yet he is. And, and the question that many people have asked him before this point is, why did you do it? So you don't really know what he did, but it seems senseless um, to them and so to everyone. Uh, and you're right, of course, that at the end, they've survived all this and, uh, and Napoleon is, is told uh, by uh, Austin Stoker's character, Bishop, he says, you know, it would be an honor if you would walk out with me. And, and Bishop actually knocks the officer who's trying to cuff Napoleon away and says, no. Um, and he's like, and, and Napoleon is like, it would, I feel that way too. And they walk out side by side. What I think is fascinating is sort of the parallel between the, the phone operator, um, Julie, and Napoleon, because they both are in opposite roles, right? Napoleon is uh, a prisoner who's a criminal, and he's probably going to be executed. And then Julie is the, a, a normal woman who is not a criminal, who works for the police department, who works for law and order, theoretically. And you have both of these people, yet when the shit hits the fan, the one that's supposed to be good completely cracks. And she is, tell she is trying to get the others to throw the father, who's in a catatonic state, out to the gang so they can get away. And Napoleon is, is the one that actually prevents with a gun, uh, uh, the other inmate, Wells, from just taking off out a window and leaving them all there. And so it was an interesting thing where it's not criminals are good and good guys are bad. It's a total gray area because some criminals are bad, but some good guys are bad. And some criminals are good under certain circumstances and some are, so it's like, it, it's, which is sort of necessary because it would seem to me ridiculous if they had the idea to say, well, these criminals that are on death row, they're good, hands down, um, when you have criminals outside who are doing terrible things. Because you can't then say, well, criminals are good. You can't leave it that black and white. Um, and again, it leads back to the idea that what are we supposed to think from this movie? And I kind of think that's the film's most effective point is that we watch this, as the logline said, a white hot night of hate. And when it comes out, what did we learn? We learned that there is no black and white. And in that way, there is no safety. Because black and white is how our brains operate to try and make sense of things, to try and make us control our environment so we are safe. And you can't do that if you can't trust who's good and who's bad. So. I think that that's digging really deep into it. And I think that most of the time you watch it, it's just kind of a nail biter with a lot of gunfire. Um, but I think that that is kind of why the film struck a chord, whether or not people understood that's why they were drawn to it and conflicted about it. I think that is sort of the case. And uh, that's sort of leading us into this, this end here where we're gonna see who we recommend it to. Greg, would you recommend the original Assault on Precinct 13, 1976 to people, and if so, why? Um, yeah, I would. Um, I think this is one of the few instances in the podcast where I wasn't 
like I said at the beginning, a big fan of it overall. Um, but I recognize that that was my own biases for the most part. Um, it, it just didn't hit me. That said, um, I mean, if you're a John Carpenter fan in general, here you go. It's another one. It's good. Um, you mentioned at the start the comparison to George A. Romero's um, Night of the Living Dead, which I think are really, really obvious the more that we've talked about it. Um, if you just like cycle of revenge films, this is it. It doesn't quite walk you the whole way, but it at least starts a conversation like it did here about kind of who is good, who is bad, where does revenge lead us, et cetera. Um, yeah. All right. I think that's accurate. And also, I want to say, too, I think this is some of John Carpenter's best writing because there's some fun lines in there, like Napoleon, when we first see him, when the transport officer is being introduced to him and Napoleon's in his cell, and he's like, did you did you understand me? Am I clear? And he goes, you mumbled a little, but I get the picture. Like, there's these great lines, and there's a few of them throughout here. Like, um, when Lay says to Bishop, uh, uh, she's getting him cough, and he goes, uh, black? And he said, for 30 years, that. going on 30 years. And you're just, and her look of complete, like, disdain for his joviality <laughs> is so striking. Um, yeah, I think those are those are those are interesting decisions, and I, I agree with you that the revenge thing—it's an interesting take. I wouldn't call it a revenge movie, but it has those themes that we see in revenge movies, and it it sort of leaves them hanging in a way that most revenge films don't don't do, and I think it causes something in us uh, to be unsettled. Mandy, who would you recommend *Assault on Precinct 13, the original 1976 film, to, and why? Um, I I mean. Generally, I would recommend it to people who like that kind of like drama slash some action kind of film. Not like full like shoot 'em up, blow up big explosions kind of film, but like they like a little bit of drama mixed in with a little bit of action. Um, also, maybe uh, they're someone who likes there to be a little more build up in the films that they're watching. So, if you've seen a lot of like recent films or you're just looking for something beyond that, like dig back into the archives and go for something from 1978. It's pretty, pretty cool. As yeah, as Nate mentioned, a, a slew of fantastic lines, quotable quotes from this film, like the, this is a vanilla twist, and like, on and on and on. Um, so like lots and lots of quotable one-liners, uh, amazing soundtrack, um, funny story. I was, when I started listening to or watching the movie, I was like, what is up with this soundtrack? I thought this was John Carpenter and had like a really good, like, you know, really good, well-known soundtrack. Um, what's going on? I had like some random like saxophone music playing because I was working earlier in the day. It was just still running on my machine. I put my headphones on when I started the film. I didn't know. And I was like, what is up with like the sound balance on this? This is some crazy 1970s stuff. But anyway, then I fixed it. And I'm like, wow, this soundtrack is amazing. It's so good. Yeah, and it's um, yeah. It, if you like the Halloween okay. soundtrack, this one I yeah. think is maybe less iconic because it's less. You can't pick it out as easily. If someone were to play it, I wouldn't necessarily be able to place which film it's from. But I actually think that it might be more listenable to his music than the Halloween thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very. It, yeah, it was very listenable. Um, it was just. It was really good. Uh, and then I would say also, I mean, historically, like the paper payphone thing I looked up like why did they why is he using payphones or why do they make such a big deal about him using payphones and I wonder if it was because in 1978 AT&T actually introduced the first coinless payphone 
they charge a call pay phone. And I wonder if that was sort of like a product placement that like we wouldn't pick up on now. Yeah, essentially we could talk like yeah. for, for hours probably on yeah. some of the little touches because communication is a big deal here, right? They're trying so hard in every single way. It just shows us how closed off we were compared to now um, with mm -hmm. communication. And I'm going to recommend this film to people like Greg said, who like John Carpenter. Also people who like, um, even though I've said it before, even though this is sort of prevented from being a film about race tension and police violence, it touches on the things behind that, the humanity between people that is, is kind of the draw for, for that for a lot, of, a lot of folks. And so things like um, Mississippi Burning and things like that, there's just something about it. I think if you were to put those films side by side, you would sense some of the same tensions in there. Uh, and I, I think that's an interesting thing to pursue. Also, I've recommended this, I think, on the film before when we've talked about Death Wish, but uh, the film based off Gar Brian Garfield's book, uh, Death Sentence, Brian Garfield, of course, having written the original Death Wish, that was directed by James Wan, who, of course, did Aquaman and was produced Insidious and the Conjuring and, and did Saw and all these things. He did the 2007 movie with Kevin Bacon, Death Sentence. And very different movie, but similar vibe of tension running through it. Very, very tense, uncomfortable film with, with shocking violence. So I think if, if that's your thing, this movie's going to hit it and then go check out Death Sentence for a more contemporary take on it. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with 1980s The Children. Hey, cult and classic crew, friends and fiends of the pod, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Nate, I don't have any money, and if I did, I'd be spending it on cool things like buttons and custom trading cards and zines that are unique and made each week by the cult and classic podcast family. And guess what? You can do both of those things at once. You can support cultandclassicpodcast.com and get awesome swag like buttons and custom trading cards that are printed on actual trading card stock by actual trading card printers and autographed by the artist and also zines like classic issues of rearted with comics and illustrations and interviews as well as brand new cult and classic podcast family publications that uh, are brand new so you'll get them first in line these are awesome, awesome things that you can get just by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash cultandclassicpodcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get videos of our episodes, you can see all our lovely shining faces, as well as exclusive content like extra episodes, film reviews, book reviews, and things like commentary by us on our short films, which you'll also be able to see. If you want to pay a little more, $5 a month per se, US, then you get an awesome autographed custom trading card. These are official printed uh, at the same place that prints every other trading card you've ever bought and they're autographed by the artist. These are exclusively for Colton Classic Podcast and inspired by our episodes. They, you can't get them anywhere else except through us. Only $5 a month, you get it shipped right to you. Shipping is free. If you pay $10 a month, if you are a true drinker of the Kool-Aid for ColtonClassicPodcast.com, then you will get uh, the trading card, access to all of the content that is exclusive to Patreon members, and you will get a brand new zine every month, whether it's a classic uh, copy of a rearted zine uh, with interviews, comics, art, all sorts of cool stuff, or brand new Colton Classic Podcast family publications. Those will get sent straight to your door. Plus there's usually extras like 
pins, stickers, all sorts of cool stuff. So you're doing two great things. You're spending money on awesome swag and you're supporting Colton Classic Podcast. I know it's tough right now in the pandemic. If you can do it, join us at Colton Classic Podcast Patreon. If you can't, why don't you recommend it to a friend? We all have those rich friends and uh, they can spread it around a little more. I'm just going to say it. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, as always, Colton Classic Podcast loves you. And we are back. Uh, we're going to talk about the children from 1980. This is, I would say, a medium to fairly well-known cult film. Uh, a lot of people say that it's a Village of the Dam takeoff. It, while it is to an extent, the Village of the Dam uh, movies were in the 60s, and then the remake didn't happen until, I think, 91. So this is actually more of a takeoff of really similar time period movies like um, Devil Times Five, which was another killer kid movie uh, and things like that. And also, of course, it is a take on uh, the dangers of nuclear power, although it's really not discussed super heavily. Supposedly, it was done um, as a uh, sort of a take on the, the mile... My brain is, is going crazy here. The, the nuclear incident around the time uh, on, on the Three Mile Island incident. Now, that being said, there is very little, uh, there's no moralizing in this movie. Um, and also, the movie starts at a nuclear power plant, which is actually a gas storage facility. And it was shot uh, after all the principal photography was done, which isn't surprising because none of those characters show up again. So the movie's plot is that in this, it's filmed in Massachusetts, so I can only assume it's supposed to take place in Massachusetts, but there's glaring problems with that, which we'll get to, is it's supposed to be a rural town, but it's got a bizarre assortment of characters in it that seem to exist for very little reason other than to get killed, which is fine. And uh, it has a sheriff. And this sheriff notices that a school bus of children, uh, not that many children, six or something, they're heading back from school, is empty on the side of the road where it shouldn't be. Well, at the opening, we saw this bus drive through a cloud of nuclear runoff gas from a leak that was not found and not fixed by two workers at the beginning of the movie. I would like to comment on this specifically because I ran into two professional reviews that said, uh, they they called those two characters at the beginning something like um, lazy or uh, invalid. Now, that seems very unfair to me because the characters in the beginning who are looking for this leak, they actually talk about how they're not getting overtime, how no one tells them anything. Um, to me, it seems like the people in charge of the plant would be the ones to be at most blame here because when you have crappy benefits, you get crappy employees. So that's their fault. Let's not blame these two blue collar working stiffs for not noticing this leak. That said, uh, the children go missing as well as some other people. And again, this is not a spoiler. I, if you, if this movie sounds like it's up your alley, nothing I say, no plot points I'm going to give are going to upset you when you see the movie. The kids go missing and they have been infected by this gas which turns their fingernails black and causes them to want to hug adults. But when they hug adults, the adults sizzle and burn into what one reviewer at the time said looked like pepperoni pizza. Now, it's a cool effect, actually. It's, it's done, it's low budget, but it's fairly effective. I we thought also, it looks really good. 
Yeah, we also don't see it a ton. They're kind of smart. They show it in the beginning, so you know it's happening, but then they're very, you know, careful with uh, not spending too much money to show it too often. And um, who doesn't think a kid is scary sometimes when they don't respond to you? We don't know what they're thinking because their brains aren't fully formed, so they don't think the same way that we do. Uh, this plays on that fear. Uh, <clears throat> what we learn as the movie goes on is that the kids kill people and they also do not die if you shoot the crap out of them. Um, the only way it turns out to kill them is by severing their burny fingers or hands, I guess I should say, um, which leads to some interesting moments as well. The main characters in this film are the, uh, the sheriff who is, uh, played by, uh, fairly, fairly well-known or, or I should say well-traveled, uh, actor, uh, Gil Rogers, and uh, the father of one of the kids, uh, John Fremont, played by Martin Shakar. Now, there's lots of other characters, as I said. Let me touch on the problems with this being in Massachusetts, but I'm going to touch on number one. There were two women in bikinis in this movie in their backyard. That has never happened in Massachusetts in my life. For one, and I'm, I'm not trying to offend Mandy, our good friend Mandy is in Massachusetts right now, um, Mandy, how much snow did you get yesterday? You're muted. My dog has also been running around, so oh, <laughs> I have myself muted. Um, and yeah, we got like 12 inches of snow yesterday. Yeah, so half the year, I'm going to be generous, half the year is cold as hell, uh, so you're not going to be in a bikini. The other half of the year is swarming with biting insects. No one is going to show that much skin in the backyard also, no one's going to be sunbathing in Massachusetts because it's not that sunny most of the time. It's it is humid and never underestimate, for those of you who are not familiar with the New England um, social aspects or like culture, the puritanistic um, derivatives of our founding fathers and mothers. People don't sit around topless in their backyards. Nope. I have friends that probably would do that, but it's not like, not if some cop starts wandering through the backyard, like, that's just not going to happen. Like, yeah. this I, I want to touch on the actual characters that are in bikinis in this too, because first off, we get the mother of one uh, character who is just straight up hates the sheriff for no clear reason. She hates the sheriff. We know this because she is irritated at his very existence when he comes by. She is mad that he's making her vicious Doberman dog bark. She's mad that he's bothering to ask her where her child is. And he's mad that uh, she seems to, uh, I don't know. Oh, he's mad that he asks about her other daughter who is in the house in a nightgown in the middle of the day playing piano and is told to take more codeine. So this, this person in bikini is a doctor. And she has an invalid daughter that we don't know what the hell the problem is. Uh, and this is never addressed whatsoever. This character, this, this mysterious girl in a nightgown, this, this ghost from the attic, essentially, who takes codeine, is not addressed at all. Uh, in fact, we only see her in this scene, and then we see her torched corpse slumped over the piano. So I don't I, know why. I think it would be really so good. more believable for New England than the other mm -hmm. family that you'll talk about. True. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it's really good if we rewind and preface that this is another fantastic trauma entertainment piece. 
Yes, yeah, so I think is, that explains a lot. This is interesting because this is actually released by Troma, uh, uh, by Troma, but it's not a Troma production. So okay. this is one of those movies. They actually got this film and uh, another film uh, by the writers, which is a much more well-known cult film called Luther the Geek, about a geek who uh, in the carnival act era uh, was a, a, a person who would bite the head off of a live chicken. So that movie came out nine years later and uh, was, was written by the writers of this film. And this film is also, I believe, the feature directorial debut from uh, Max uh, Kalmanowizic. Kalmanowizic? I've never known how to pronounce Max's name, but Max did do another film, directed one more film called Dreams Come True uh, in 1984, which is a weird, uh, give it a watch. It's a weird movie about a couple in love who are able to sort of transcend astrally and go fuck with other people's lives. Very strange. Lots of sex, lots of weirdness, super 80s. So, yeah, Troma released this film, and I want to say, when we comment on this film, we actually did not watch the Troma release. The Troma release was remastered to some extent. Um, and then there has since been a, a re-release of the film on Blu-ray, which is a beautiful, beautiful transfer uh, of, of this movie uh, by Vinegar Syndrome, who, of course, we love Vinegar Syndrome. Vinegar Syndrome, if you want to send us stuff to review, please don't hesitate. Uh, they did a great job. This copy was part of the Grindhouse Features 20 film collection and is literally a rip. I can, it has to be a direct rip of a badly uh, cared for VHS. Uh, it's, it has, this was an official release, but it has tracking problems near the end. It is, the second half of the film I'd hazard to say is like the power went out in the movie because it is like staring at blackness with a couple of dots running around. So if you don't have a better quality copy, seek one out because that copy, while it's watchable, it is not as enjoyable as the really beautiful Vinegar Syndrome or even the Troma release. So take that with a grain of salt. But yeah, so that's, I've only touched on the one bikini so far. Shortly thereafter, we get the second bikini, which is my favorite scene, I think, for, for no reason other than it's, sheer madness which is um a one of the mothers of one of the children and she's topless she doesn't really seem to care that the sheriff is walking out back uh, they at least have a pool and um she's just kind of holding her bra there and her husband we assume is i can only assume a bodybuilder because he is he won he, he doesn't have to work out anymore he won and uh he's jacked and he's oiled up and he's like lifting a dumbbell while the sheriff is trying to figure out if, if this couple's kid is home. Now, this girl uh, is not loved by her parents. We know this because they don't know where she is. And her response when asked, the mother's response when asked where she was, is, oh, I don't know. She's always skulking around the house somewhere. Like, yeah, doesn't she live there? Yeah, that's probably where she spends most of her time. Um, but these two think it's kind of crazy and cool that there might be a kidnapping afoot. And this, while the mother then picks up a marijuana cigarette, starts to smoke it. And then the sheriff has this great scene after he's gotten zero information out of these obnoxious people. He picks up this case that's on the counter or the little, their little side table next to the pool. And he's like, this is a nice. And they're like, yeah, we got it on, I can't remember if they say, they're a trip to India or whatever. I didn't know you were interested in arts or whatever. And he, goes, and he doesn't say anything. He just opens it and he dumps all of their weed in the pool. <laughs> 
and then closes it and sets it back on the table. It was, it's one of the instances that this film has where there's little touches of effective characterization, but I do think this film suffers from a lack of it because we have so many characters and they do give many of them these weird little things like a, you know, coding chugging ghost or um, an angry bikini mom or a crazy greased up dumbbell lifter. But I don't know any purpose to it other than to fill up screen time. Did you guys feel anything about that? Man, did you have any take on those characters? Yeah, I just thought it was just like weird, like differentiation of the characters. So when they got killed off, you kind of knew who they were. That's certainly what it seems to me. Um, those, the same couple, they seemed to have, and of course there's so many names that I would, the names mean nothing, right? Um, there's at one point there's a, a fancy car because they blocked off the roads trying to find the kids and, and figure out why these dead bodies are popping up uh, with, by the way, the worst sheriff's deputy in the world. I mean, okay, we're in the era where we know there are worse sheriffs, but this sheriff's deputy is particularly ineffectual. He basically spends his time mapping out what looks like a 14-year-old girl and then, uh, le and then lets through a nice car with a wealthy-looking pimp, uh, I guess, in the back seat who says who closes his window between every sentence so the officer so the, the deputy is like um i'm sorry only people who live here can get through the guy rolls the window up then rolls it back down and he says i think i think that so and so would want me there and then he rolls it back up he keeps doing that over and over like three or four times um and i i, I think we're supposed to assume maybe that he's in he makes dirty films and that that couple who the one who was topless and the weightlifter are probably in pornography that kind of was the vibe but again there's nothing really said about that and the next time we see that weird backseat window rolling character is just when he's dead on the ground um like way later so they just needed more bodies but the scenes are very very strange the organization is odd um it's almost like a compromise was made. Like one of the writers was like, okay, I got this movie about toxic waste turning these kids into like human toasters that just melt you. And the other one was like, and I have this giant packet of all these kind of funny sketches that are really work when they don't work. Like I'm just going to have people do bizarre stuff that's funny because it doesn't make sense. I'm going to have this mom and dad, maybe, who don't seem to care about their kid and actively want them to be kidnapped. And like they just mashed both of those things together, the sketches and the horror movie. It's, so there is one interesting, so here's one reason why there's a weird character is because uh, that particular presumably pornography filmmaker in the movie is the actor is Martin Brennan. This was his only credited film. And apparently the rumor is, is that he was a drug dealer who sold cocaine to the cast and crew. So he found as a cocaine dealer in the eighties, the single best cover in the world because his cover for looking like a cocaine dealer was being a cocaine dealer actor. Like, because you couldn't help but pull this man over if you were a cop in the 80s because you know i'm like either you have like children locked up in your trunk or you're doing you know you're selling horse like something like it's just that's that's this guy and apparently that is the case the rumor is is that he was the coke dealer for the set which explains some other choices too but um 
there's some interesting facts on this. The soundtrack, which is actually not bad, um, is, is done by uh, the composer of Friday the 13th, the soundtrack. And what's interesting about that is that uh, this was done in the same year. So the soundtracks are really similar. Um, so if you, if you are a big Friday the 13th fan, you're going to be kind of humming the wrong notes occasionally because they're pretty close. Yeah, I think your, uh, your mic went out. Oh, I could hear him. Can you hear me now? This is turning into a really uh, bad AT&T or Sprint commercial. I can't remember which side that guy swapped to, but uh, yeah. So anyway, the Friday the 13th soundtrack and the soundtrack for this film are by the same composer during the same year, and they sound very similar, almost as though they're alterations of the same score. So that's a fascinating one. Now, there's the co-writer, Carlton Albright, um, who did uh, also did Luther the Geek, he also produced this film. And the character of uh, Hank in this movie is one of the people who, who, you know, is there to be a body, is Edward Terry. And apparently they were friends. Albert and Terry were friends. And Terry was promised the directorial role on this film. And uh, he didn't get it. And they were no longer friends. Uh, but then I guess for Luther and the Geek, they patched things up because Terry plays... Um, the, one of the freaks in there. So that's an interesting thing. Another interesting moment, this is Shannon Boleyn's last film. Uh, Shannon Boleyn plays the sort of general store slash cop caller. Like she's, she, I don't know. The sheriff calls her, but she seems to work in like a general store. So I, I don't really understand her. She's like, she runs the general store and dispatch. Yeah. Like, and I, I mean, I've, I've lived in small towns before, and that's that reads true. Um, she was in the Damn Yankees movie, 1958. She plays Mrs. Ed, uh, Meg Boyd in that, and uh, she looks very different here. But you've probably seen her or recognize her. She she played a lot of older women near the end, and she does it well, especially when she says, "Oh, the children! I found the children!" and then shrieks her death knell over the uh, the police officer radio although no one's holding the button so she shouldn't be able to be heard but she is so maybe it's stuck i'm not a i'm not an expert um and a little info too i guess the the bodybuilder uh in that film was his name is john p codiglia or codiglia boy that's a tough one for me as well uh, but he's also was a police officer and the director knew him from the gym so this is a weird ass movie. People are doing coke, hiring people from their gym, and uh, it's about kids who burn people alive, and they only seem to know the words mommy uh, or daddy. Now, how did you guys feel about the kids in this movie? Because they move very slow. They seem to have some intelligence, right? But it's never really acknowledged as to what the purpose is. Um, they start to flesh out maybe some differences because we don't see the kids that often. Um, actually, we just see their bodies, mo the bodies of the people they kill most of the time. But there are a couple of telling scenes. Um, one scene is one girl seems, one of the fathers breaks down on the side of the road and this girl in the woods looks like she's going to go over and approach him. But then the sheriff's car pulls up behind her and she backs away. So they seem to understand danger uh, or perhaps they, they like their pickings easy. 
and of course their nails are black when they kill. The, a big one is that one of the girls who they find her in the middle of the road, the sheriff and, and the uh, lead character father, and they just take her and put her in the backseat of her car and she lays there and her nails are normal translucent color. And then later on they turn black as though she's had like a change come over her and she attacks the sheriff. Now in this scene, she's in the back seat, the sheriff's in the front seat. She reaches for him slowly and the sheriff leaps out of the car as though the world's biggest spider has just jumped on his neck and said, she attacked me, which was hilarious because he's like, she went right for my throat. I'm like, her fingers could not clasp your ear. She is a child. And that did not ring true. It's one of those things where I always wonder as a director, you have to see that doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't you just change the line on the spot? Like, um, you know, it burned my neck or whatever, like anything. But it's just these little touches that don't quite make sense that it, it keeps it from being extra uh, well done. Uh, I don't think it's, it's terribly done. I mean, the shots are effective. Um, some of the acting's not stellar. Uh, there's a fantastic scene where the, the girl who the deputy is, is hitting on the entire movie is trying to, and she's reciprocating to be fair. She is riding her bicycle, which we get a long shot of her butt on the bicycle, which is confusing because bless her heart, she's a child looking person and does not have a butt. I don't know what I'm supposed to be looking at. She gets to the house that she's apparently delivering a bag of apples, which I don't know where she was carrying them because they weren't on her bike. And she wanders through the house yelling the person's name, I've got your apples, and gets mad that no one's answering her. And she even goes upstairs and is wandering around this large house screeching this person's name. And I'm like, did, bitch, did she tell you to show up at three? Like, where is, I don't know the plot well enough to understand why this is happening. And the best part is she's already irritated. She's going down the stairs. The bag is turned upside down and all the apples dump all over the floor. What does she do? She leaves them there, gets back on her bike and goes on her merry way. Brilliant. This is after she is not pulled over when the rich uh, pornography maker has been driving behind her and honking, and she just does not give one shit. She's driving in the center lane. Does she looks back at him twice, and I'm like, this. That was my favorite moment because I want to know. I want to follow this girl everywhere. She's trying to have sex with a sheriff who's clearly older than her. She delivers apples on people's living room floor. And she refuses to move for oncoming traffic. This is a brilliant character that I want to know more about. And I hey, that's just ever... UPS's uh, new youth program. It's, it's just, it's Amazon <laughs> Delivery's new drone service. It's really just a, a blonde girl on a bike with a bad attitude. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't understand this. And I don't think we ever see her again. I don't think she dies. She might, but I don't think so. Oh, she does die. Yeah, she does. Doesn't her brother get her? Her right? brother gets her. And she has a great scene then because she gets home <laughs> and the brother's there and reaches out for her. And she's like, idiot. Like she just pushes him the other way and she slaps him in the face and just walks right around him. And he's <laughs> and then finally he catches up to her in the barn, but she does nothing but curse at him the whole time and is very realistic. Like it is I'm like, are these two they maybe their brother and sister in real life? I didn't check the credit on those two, but it was pretty great. Which I did, I did like that dynamic because it kind of brings the point up of these are, you know, kids. Mm -hmm. So they're 
half a third of your size, just kick them. Just kick them yeah. as hard as you can, and they're going to fall over. But obviously, the, the crux of the film is it's these towns. It's their kids. You know, it's yeah. can't, could you shoot your own kid, even if you were 100% positive, your kid wasn't there anymore, and it was some kind of being coming to kill you. Um, kind of the, the inverse of the infamous mom and dad movie that came out a few years ago. With our, our, our love of our lives, Nicholas Cage. We love mm-hmm. you, deep friend of the pod. And so here's the thing. So this film was in production uh, uh, presumably five years after um, uh, It's Alive and from 1974, which uh, Larry Cohen's film, which, which we watched on this podcast. Go take a listen. Guys, we paired it with Prevenge, which is a wonderful film. Now, so this is clearly in their mind. Like, that was a successful film. And it sort of has some similarities in that it's a dynamic between parents and kids, right? And the, the climax happens when the sheriff and the father and his pregnant wife um, and, and their kid, little boy who stayed home from school so didn't get infected uh, is sleeping upstairs. They're all in the house. And the father and the sheriff now know that kids are killing people because... There, the, the husband's missing daughter grabbed him and burnt his hand terribly. Now, he's on board with the fact that the kids are no longer children or something like that. The mother's not, right? The mother actually knocks the sheriff out while he's firing at the kids in the darkness. Uh, and then she eventually comes back around when their son is killed upstairs. This is another issue here. Because in that ending segment where they're essentially going out and trying to find the children one by one to kill them because they've learned they can cut the hands off them and they die. Um, they, they say that the kids can't leave this area somehow. So we presume it's fenced in or something, this guy's property. Um, it's like a throwaway line. But I'm like, how could they not leave when one of them got to the second floor bedroom with your little boy in the closet? What in God's name happened for that to be possible, did one of them head on in earlier in the day, go get stuck in the closet, and then just didn't come out until the little boy opened the door in the middle of the night? It made no sense. Um, but he climbed on the roof. He came he cl- in the window. Didn't he come in the window? Like, wasn't he, like, out there, like, knocking the window? Like, but then how did he get on the roof? Well, he was in a right. door, because the little boy oh, no. hears oh. somebody calling from a door. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, like we're gonna I, need an instant replay on this one. I'm, I'm like, very confused yeah, it was weird. By the power. This is the like show. the the least of my problems with the overall plot and the film, and like the character motivations and like the ending overall. Oh, like, let's was, we'll talk about the ending. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so so there's this so. There's a, this other scene, when I talked about we get a little bit of characterization, very few scenes of characterization from these monstrous children. And the, the other part that we see a reaction of some kind from them is when the sheriff, with he has a sword, a decorative sword, which is what he's been using to, to cut the hands off the children. Um, him and the father uh, corner them in the barn of some kind. It's a barn or a shed or something. And the children actually are cowering, which is interesting because I wish we'd seen, I wish they had more foresight to make this a more narrow story um, so we could get this kind of interaction because the idea that these are children who some for some reason have a desire to kill adults but they're still afraid of death and they recognize innately this sort of animalistic fear when nothing has changed except for the fact that now the adults are aware of them their cover is blown basically 
Um, that I was like, oh, that's a weird touch because that pings something in my primal brain that you don't attack something that's afraid, like it's scared. Um, and of course the dad can't, he can't kill his own daughter, uh, it turns out, but the sheriff has no problem. Um, the sheriff, in fact, wildly butchers the children. Uh, he's just been looking for a reason to shoot these kids. Totally, the whole totally. Because he shot them several times. It does. You can shoot them as many times as you want, and nothing happens. Um, yeah. And then, of course, now that he has a sword, you know, he he doesn't stop with the hands because we've seen that one swipe can take off both the hands of these children. Uh, but he must have swung that thing before the camera cuts away, like seven, eight times uh, for three kids. That's that's a that's more than one swipe per hand. Uh, and then, of course, the sheriff gets offed by uh, the kid that he only cut off one hand of because when you don't finish what you start, that's what happens. Um, now, let's talk about this ending. So, Mandy, what happens after the sheriff has died in this movie? Oh All the kids are dead. The sheriff has died. There are bodies that look like pepperoni pizza strewn all across the town and like in their very house with their two dead children mm -hmm. and the pregnant mother goes into labor yeah and has her baby and then there's this really weird like everything's okay moment at the end when like the dad and the mom are all like oh our family their young child is still smoldering in the room next door <laughs> yes uh, yeah, it is. It and I mean, like, wild. the movie kind of addresses the weirdness of that because it does, like, kind of pan across, right. like, like all the carcasses her, across town. Yeah, like, we hear her in yeah. labor over the scene, and I'm like, what am I supposed to feel right now? It's sort of like in Assault on Precinct 13, I felt like my confusion was intentional. Um, I wasn't supposed to really be comfortable with what happened. In this one, I'm just like, you're just fucking with me because you're showing me the carnage across this town and we get this like, you know, the happy, you know, alternate ending of a quiet place where everyone, you know, the parents are alive and there's a new baby, you know, like it, it's a different, it's a different vibe. Um, and I, I kept, ex there is one little twist that they do, right? When you see the new infant suckling at its mother's breast, it has black fingernails. Now, I don't understand what that's supposed to mean. Because, okay, so what? the town is, so I get it to a point, right? The town is poisoned with fumes, maybe. Maybe it's in the water now. Okay. But she's not burning alive and it's touching her. So, I mean. What are the rules? Exactly. What are the rules? Exactly. Right. Why is it only kids? Rule? Why don't the kids' hands burn other things? Why do the kids' hands burn each other? They just know not to touch each other. Did the movie really think it got us with the twist? Because I was sitting there, like, after, like, those last, like, 15 minutes, I'm like, as soon as the pregnancy happened, like, yeah. or, sorry, not happened, but as soon as the birth process happened, yeah. I was just sitting there, like, okay, just, what is it? The baby has, like, fangs? Like, what? what is it? I don't right. care. He's, what, just... he's going he's gonna to cut his own cord with his birdie fingers? <laughs> like, what's going to yeah. happen here? Um, yeah, it's it's sort of like... It's a really lazy, and the thing is, of course, this is decades later uh, that um, the uh, Dawn of the Dead remake uh, with, with good old Ving Rhames by um, another, another... Wait, did, did the, mo the mother drove through the cloud of the stuff? Yes. So, that's so she wasn't problem. affected, but her baby in utero was affected. 
Perhaps that, so. I'm sorry, I'm just getting it now, guys. So I'm perhaps, kind of slow today. Perhaps so. Um, but again, it doesn't really matter, right? Because, <laughs> I, I mean, it doesn't matter because you have this, this problem where, there, as you said, Greg, you hit the nail on the head, there's no rules in this that make sense. Um, we're not given enough information. So even though I do think there were moments of nice characterization throughout occasionally, and uh, the sheriff, so the sheriff is not a very good sheriff um, because one, my first thought if I see a bunch of bodies like that, and maybe it's because we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now in 2020, but a bunch of bodies that are dead and all look the same, I would think disease. That would be my first thing. I wouldn't think the kids have been kidnapped and people have been killed with rotisserie ovens. Like, I don't know what's happening. Um, that wouldn't be my first thought, but that is his first thought. Um, actually, we don't know what his first thought is because every time somebody says what's happening, he goes, I don't know. Um, but he is awful scared when they're in one of the family's houses and they found several dead bodies, uh, including the uh, ghostly piano coding girl, because once they hear a nose from a door, the dad opens the door and the sheriff empties his gun wildly into this closet. And of course, out falls an already dead, burned alive Doberman Pinscher. So, and the other character even addresses it. It's like, yep, you shot a dead dog. Like, that's the sheriff. So no, I don't have any, I don't know who I'm supposed to like here. Um, I don't know what's supposed, like, it's not like, whereas in um, Assault on Precinct 13, Bishop's character, he's not a perfect, like, hero, because he's a little more realistic, because he does sort of panic at one point. He kind of has this futile laughter, you know, like, things are just shitty, shitty. Um, but he's, he's going, his intent is true and pure and he's trying to get everyone out safely. Like that's his goal. In the children, the sheriff is a bumbling old man who is surrounded with other bumbling people. And it just, I, I don't get it. Um, but that's not to say that I didn't find some entertainment in this film. Um, so I think there's a reason why this film is somewhat well known. And we're gonna wrap this up, as I say, starting with me, who I would recommend this film to and why. If you love killer kid movies and you love 80s movies, give it a watch. Warning, while this film came out in 1980, it is definitely a 70s movie. It does not feel like an 80s film. It feels like a mid to late 70s uh, film. If you want to double bill it, I recommend double billing it with It's Alive, which I think is a better film across the board. Um, and definitely spring for a remastered print, especially Vinegar Syndrome's print, uh, or at the least Trauma's print, because the Grindhouse Collection print is a very, very poor one. And VHS transfers of this, because it was a low-budget film shot with natural lighting, especially near the end of the film where it gets to be dusk, it is, it is a gray-black haze throughout the entire film. Um, you're essentially waiting for characters to turn lights on for the last 40 minutes. But I would recommend it to those people. People who are looking for something that's punchy, quick, spooky, Stick with the original Night of the Living Dead. Go watch that. It's paced much better. And it has a similar parent vibe because you have the little girl who's clearly turning into a zombie with the parents. It's a smaller section of the film, but it's got a similar vibe. And I think it's a much more successful film that clearly inspired some aspects of the children. Greg, would you recommend the children to someone and why? 
Um, yeah, I think I would. Um, I mean, if like you said, I mean, if you're just looking for an 80s film that feels like it was made in the 70s, just kind of a hokey, fun horror movie that it's not going to make you think too hard. Um, it's, you know, plot points are laughable at best. Um, it's just it's just something fun and stupid. Um, it's f- creepy enough. Um, I was actually regarding the kids I was thinking about I think it's like that 2018 truth or dare movie where they do this like um, yeah they do like this effect in the trailers because I didn't see the film but they make everyone have this really creepy smile and I'm like man like it'd be great if you could get that smile for real out of people and these kids all do that smile they're very unnerving yes yeah um so yeah it's a little bit unnerving but it's a little bit you know weird characters weird sketch bits um just don't go in expecting this to be on your like top 10 just go in with a couple drinks some popcorn and have a laugh great popcorn movie totally agree and uh, uh those who are interested in the Bloomhouse truth or dare film that came out a few years ago uh check out my review on horrornews.net it's actually a, a very solid film and that effect is used just the right amount uh mandy who would you recommend the children to and why i would recommend this film to those people in your life who need more motivation to socially distance through the rest of the pandemic. (laughs) Because I feel like this gives you um, an appropriate level of discomfort with people trying to give you hugs. So. (laughs) Yeah, because I don't want killer children to hug me and I definitely don't want super greased up bodybuilder men uh, or, or topless women who dwell in Massachusetts and smoke pot next to a pool in the middle of, I don't know, spring. Like, that's a terrible climate. I don't get it. Uh, I wouldn't want them to touch me either. So that's going to wrap it up. I'm going to throw one more little thing here. Um, A shout out to uh, our Instagram friend, Thomas Hensley. Uh, Follow him at T-O-M underscore H-E-N-S-L-E-Y 22. That is Tom Hensley 22. The reason I'm doing this is because he is a fantastic sculptor who did a really, really cool uh, sculpture of Uh, one of the children from the children based on the film. So follow him, scroll his Instagram and check that out because it is a million times better than the movie. And I think the movie's fun. So check it out. This has been another episode of Colton Classic Podcast. To play us out as always is The Chud with All About Evil. I want to give a big, big end of the year thank you to everyone who listens to our podcast and ask you to please both subscribe, recommend us to your friends and big deal, write a review. Whatever podcast service you use, um, write a review. If you don't know where you can write a review, find us on the Apple Podcasts or iTunes and write a review there. It really helps people find us online, and it's been a great year. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to Colton Classic Podcast. This podcast is important to me, but what's more important are the rights, privileges, and freedom from violence of everyone in this country and in this world, and that means supporting Black Lives Matter. If you'd like to make a donation, please go ahead and visit coltonclassicpodcast.com where we have a list of places you can donate and help out. And please stay safe.